like if that was a problem with our kids, <laughs> like, that would be broken real quick. <laughs> like that, if I like walk in, if I walk into a toilet bowl. Who is in here? <laughs> dad voice, full dad voice. Handle this. Never again. Done. guys welcome back to couple goals with us and i'm hey hi how are you i'm okay we're on episode 26 yeah yeah how's, how's your recovery going it's going great yeah i've had a really good week i feel pretty much back to normal yeah i mean i still am sensitive but i'm fine so our listeners might want to know oh yeah i'm okay everything's fine everything's good so let's start off with the fact that they released the second full Venom trailer this week. And I had you watch it a couple times. Including a moment ago. Yeah. What yeah. are your what are your thoughts? Venom is disgusting. Bye. He licks people as well as eats them. Yeah. I'm very excited about that. I didn't think they were gonna put that in the movie that he likes to eat brains and whatnot. So that that's I think in recent years I, I think they've kind of dropped that from the comics but yeah he's always been a, he's he's always been a really violent anti-hero type the thing gets me is it's just that whole line about a turd in the wind i think that's an oddly funny line did you catch that yeah i don't know why it would be like it's just something i don't know there's something funny about that i like it i think it's disgusting <laughs> that and like the drool that's that's coming from his face oh, that's so great dude like they, they did a great job with all right so i i will see this i mean like it's not i'm not saying no like it actually looks quite good yeah however something is terribly wrong with tom hardy's voice he's very hard to understand i think they'll do some work and post on it and then you were asking about Jenny Slate. I bet yeah, you she's, she's doing some ADR work right now. <laughs> I bet. She's got to be getting her, what did her she call symbi it? Her symbiote. Symbiotes. Yeah, turning into symbiotes. Like that's, that. That's what I'm guessing is happening. I could be wrong. We'll find out in October. But the same thing happened. I don't know if you remember. You probably don't. But when the Dark Knight Rises trailer came out, you could not understand Bane at you all. can't understand Bane anyway. No, but they... They did something either in post or re-recorded or something. And he's still he's hard to understand, but not, you literally couldn't understand him in the trailer he's at all. Like, it sounded like <laughs> like it was so garbled and Instead, bad. Instead, he sounds like hello. Yeah, I'm they changed Bane. it up. <laughs> they changed it up some weird, exaggerated Sean Connery. Oh my god! But at least he's intelligible. Tom you don't need Har subtitles like that movie we watched, The Witch. Well, that's in a different dialect of English. That yeah. I wouldn't understand. Tom Hardy might just speak a different dialect. Well, Tom Hardy for for Bane was apparently doing an accent. Yeah. He was doing a Romani accent. Okay. Like a gypsy accent. I I looked into it because I was so upset by his voice <laughs> that I and he was trying to do a voice. Okay. It and didn't he's say, just not. Good. Here's the thing with Bane in the comics. Bane is Spanish. <laughs> so I don't know why they went with that. But yeah, Bane, huh. Bane is is Spanish. If if I remember correctly, and I, I actually have Bane's first appearance somewhere, Vengeance of Bane. I believe you. Yeah, you should, because I do. Or I did. I don't actually, I don't know if I still do. I think that might be one of the comics I, I had to lose in the attic when we moved the one time. 
But yeah, he he was Spanish though, or is Spanish, I should say. But yeah, the the what do you think of Venom's design? Oh, he's fine. You think he's fine? See, I like the Todd McFarlane Venom, like yeah. the original, and then Mark Bagley did it as well, very very similar. They're going with more of a Tyler Kirkham Venom. I noticed. Did you notice that? <laughs> <laughs> I like Tyler Kirkham too, but well, same doesn't everybody? So, <laughs> but I I prefer the original style, or um, who's the other guy? Oh, uh, Gerardo Sandoval does a really cool Venom. I like I like his Venom a lot too. But yeah, like I said, they're they're doing they seem to be doing like a Tyler Kirkham type of thing. Oh. <laughs> I love when I just totally lose you with my nerdiness. <laughs> like, listen, dial it back. <laughs> hey, so you were going to tell me a story. I have a lot of things I have to we have to talk about. OK. Number one. I I was originally going to do goats for today's news for today's uh, episode. Goats. Because I like goats. That guy was, who, like, with the website who pulls his butthole apart. Is that what you're talking about? So I really like goats. <laughs> and I was just like. Just ignore me. I was like, well, I'll I'll just talk about goats. And then I researched goats. There's not much to talk about. So <laughs> not a lot of, here's the not a lot of high crime. So in I the won't goat be community. I won't be covering goats at any point. But here's a funny thing that popped up. So I, I was like, I literally saw a video of goats jumping around and I was like, I'm going to talk about goats for half an hour. And I so I I Googled goats. That's it. That's all I Googled just to see what comes up. And on August 3rd. So just a few days ago, this story came out. Over 100 goats run loose in Boise, caught grazing lawns. 100 escaped goats munched on manicured lawns in Idaho's capital city before being rounded up and hauled away Friday morning. <laughs> that sounds owner, like I'm not a hot fox. <laughs> the owner of We Rent Goats told <laughs> CBS Boise affili affiliate KBOI, which is like K-Boy. Like, that's like so meme-tastic, like, right. hey boy, um, that 118 goats were grazing at a nearby retention pond when they broke through a fence and went to explore. Multiple news out outlets captured the goats calmly eating grass and shrubs into the Boise neighborhood before a trailer arrived amid applause from neighborhood residents. So basically, <laughs> and it was all over Twitter and stuff. So these goats broke free. And we're just eating happily. So I'm not going to cover goats as a topic, but I do want to give a shout out to goats. <laughs> shout out to the goats. I do like goats. You're you're a good animal. I like you. <laughs> and then the story I was Thanks actually, to all our goat listeners, <laughs> all our goats and fans of goats. The story I was going to tell you, I'm going to change some names. OK, to protect the innocent, to, pr to protect to protect people. I don't know that they're innocent, but they're definitely people and we're going to protect them. OK. So I was at I was at this place. <laughs> we're also going to change places. So I was at this place. And this person, we'll call her Beth. Gets a phone call from her son. OK. And I'm with Beth. And. Beth's son. It's telling her a story and she is reacting in the most horrified manner. She's like, oh, God. Oh, it's like to the point where I thought something had happened. Yeah. And then she hangs up 
well, she tells her son, just stay calm. I'll be there soon. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, something has happened. Right. And Beth says to me, you'll never believe what happened. My dog stuck his head in the toilet after my son shit, got his shit out of the toilet <laughs> and ran to the living room and has smeared it all over the couch and carpet. Her son, for 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 complete explanation. How old is her son? Her son is 13. So it is human adult size shit. All right. Is there more? All right. I'm going to ask you a question that you may or may not have the answers to. But I don't know about you, but there's not a lot of time between. Her son doesn't flush. Okay, that answers that question. So she says, I don't understand why he doesn't just flush the toilet. Yeah, I don't either. I feel like that's an easy habit to break. Like, if that was a problem with our kids, <laughs> like that would be broken <laughs> real quick. <laughs> like, if I, like walk in, if I walk into a toilet bowl, who is in here? <laughs> dad voice, full dad voice, handle this, never again, done. So... As people would join the party that we were, you know, that, that I was in. Yeah. Beth would retell the story and it finally got to the third retelling and I was literally gagging and I'm like, you've got to stop. I can't believe you're not gagging. Oh, you're starting to gag now. You're just thinking about poo all I over the couch. I can't. I can't. <laughs> I can't. But yeah, that's that's what I uh, that that happened to me this week. What kind of monster doesn't flush? Uh, yeah. I don't care how old you are. So he didn't flush, and then she had to go home. Like she had to leave and go home and clean her house because it was covered in human feces. So she didn't make him deal with any of this? Mm -mm. I would have. Oh, it was also all over. The, I can't talk about it. <laughs> all like, over the what? The dog. The dog, his face. <laughs> <laughs> it's so gross. Like... How did you deal with it when Logan gave you a, a poop mustache as a baby? Have we told that story? No, we haven't no? told that story. That's more your story. Do you want to tell it? No. I'll tell it. No. I wasn't I, there I, for it. I was at work. But you were you were home with Logan and going to change his diaper. No. I guess. No. No. You weren't changing his diaper? All right. I'll tell it. I wasn't there. <laughs> I heard it secondhand. So Logan... As a, as a child, you know how kids in general, they mumble. They, like, use their own language. You can't understand them. Yeah. So as a parent, you normally can figure out certain words and certain what they're saying. Yeah. But I couldn't understand him. And he, I was, I was pregnant still. So he was in a diaper. Yeah. He wasn't potty trained yet. Right. And he was mumbling. And I was like, what are you saying, buddy? Like, I was like face to face with him, squatting on the ground, trying to figure out what he was saying to me yeah. as he's standing in front of me. Because Logan walked at like nine months. Logan was like an infant and he was just running across the house. <laughs> so and he potty trained at like 19 months. So this is before Mason was born. Mason was born when Logan was 18 months. And he's uh, he's staring at me and he's mumbling. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. And he pulls his hand out from behind his back and he's got shit on his finger and he just wipes it across my face like to get his point across. <laughs> he was trying to tell me his diaper was dirty and I didn't understand him. So I he, can't, I can't so believe. he showed me. I, I vomited everywhere. Just oh, like okay. I, and I would vomit on them. Don't you, do you not remember that? 
I can't handle. I remember you waking up in the night and vomiting all over the bed. Okay, that's acid reflux. That's an illness. <laughs> I remember but, that though. But it was usually when you were pregnant. Yeah. That was the. That's because the baby pushes on your junk and it's like, and not your genitals, but like your up, up, up high junk. And yeah. It pushes on your genitals too. But um, no, I would vomit when I would change their diapers. I remember the dry heaving. Oh my God. I remember cleaning up because it was like, li- it was like, this is gross. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. <laughs> parenting is fucking disgusting. Um, but it was, it was like liquid. Like I'd only had water. Yeah. So it was just like stomach acid and bile. Mm. And it was just dripping down the side of the goddamn ta- changing table. And I had to finish changing him because then I had to bathe him. Then I had to clean it up because I stayed home. I stayed home until Mason was like six months old. I didn't. I was a stay at home mom and I would just vomit on my children constantly. <laughs> just just for the record, I changed diapers, too. Oh, yeah, I was he did. just at work, so I didn't change. Oh, as he much changed as she did. plenty of diapers. He and he and he would stay well, up I at just, night. I just want people to know I did wasn't just like, yeah, go go vomit on the children. I'm going <laughs> to play some more Metroid. <laughs> well, he was like he wasn't like go vomit on the children. He's like, I'm going to change this diaper and then we're going to go play some more Metroid. <laughs> that was more him. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, that's all. Man, my. I'm really proud of you for getting through those stories, though, without actually throwing up. That's <sighs> right? impressive. You kept it down. Oh, my mouth is like damp. Like, you know how when you start to feel sick, like you might throw up and you get all like, like all the mouth juice. Saliva, How's that go? Saliva. How's that go again? Which part? <laughs> it's the sound effects. Yeah, I don't get really get that. I do. <laughs> it's the thing that happens. That happens to me. I don't know. I got to tell you, though, if, you know, Mason's 14, you know, older than your friend's kid but if that like he's cleaning that up i'll supervise i'll, I'll i can't talk about i'll this. even get i can't talk about this some cleaning this stuff this is giving out for me him. the vision of it being in my house please stop <laughs> i can't talk about this but i i am not <laughs> handling like you didn't flush the toilet you get to clean up all the shit i'm gonna throw up everywhere <laughs> <sighs> all right so do you have a story for us this? oh wait we do you want to we, we saw a movie that was oh, not oh. a nerd movie. We saw a movie, and I actually have a little bit of input about stuff in the movie. So we saw a movie, and there was a Maserati in the movie. And because I've been talking about it with you, who did not care that yeah, there was I a Maserati, um, Facebook showed me a Maserati ad. And it turns out it's only seven fifty a month to rent for three years with 6000 down. Who knew? Mm. Now everybody knows. So we went and saw Sorry to Bother You. I don't know what else to say. Oh, I, th- I thought you were going to follow. Yeah. So we went to see S- Sorry to Bother You. I I wanted to go and see a movie that wasn't a big deal. Like in recent years, I've really gotten away from, from seeing independent movies and pretty Small much anything budget. that isn't some big budget action fest. And I used to go see a lot more of that stuff. Like I, I used to love going to see that. The, the smaller indie movies but anymore, you know, you know, as you get older and you get busier, we te- we tend to only go out for the event movies and right. then we'll, we'll rent movies, you know, to the, the smaller movies and stuff like that. But with movie ticket prices going up and stuff, it's just harder to, to justify. But uh, my friend John recommended this movie and it's not playing and it's only playing in like three theaters, none of them near here. 
There was of like course. there was one theater half an hour away, and it only had one showtime for the day. Yeah, it has one showtime. So we had to like we had to arrange our we had whole day around rearrange it. everything to go to it because I had plans during that time. But but anyway, that so it's it's called Sorry to Bother You, and the the basic premise is about a guy who goes to work as a telemarketer, but that is. There's so much more to this movie, and movie I don't want to spoil anything. The movie's obviously. about yeah, we're not gonna we're not. The gonna movie's spoil. very just it's very anti greedy capitalists. That's is what it basically. is. It's it reminded me a lot. Of, to me, it was a cross between Fight Club, Idiocracy, and an episode of Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah, it's very Twilight Zone. It's very Black Mirror. It's really it's got that anti corporate agenda, and then. It's really funny. It is. It's it's funny. It's very funny. So it's a good movie. Yeah, I it recommend was a, it. It was a good movie. It was it was pretty. It was solid. It was a solid movie. And it was nice to go out and see a movie that it's it's been so long since you know what I mean. I go see Star Wars. I go see Marvel movies. It feels like that's pretty much it. Well, or funny. other comic book movies, but because when we bought our tickets, it was like one other guy had bought a ticket. Like yeah. when they showed us the screen, because it was one of those. Right. It was a small theater. Like we went to a very large building, but the, the theater itself the only room. sat. Yeah, the screening room only sat 92. And when she, she it's all assigned seating. So she showed the the seats and there was something like one ticket sold. Right. So and it was the guy directly in front of where we picked our seats. So we get our seats. And by the time the movie started, I was sitting next to somebody. There was someone right. right one down. People. I mean, it, it, fill it up, filled up. It I'm, filled up. Not not all the way, but yeah. I filled up to like fifty percent capacity. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not the worst. I mean, it is when you think about the fact that it's the only showing for the day. The budget for that movie, I googled it on the way home, was three point two million dollars. It is a small budget movie. Yeah, very it low is budget movie. Really good. Yeah, there are scenes where you're like, oh yeah, it's a low budget, but <laughs> for the most part, it's not. I mean, it's just it feels good. It feels like oh, yeah, a good I should movie. also say, like as part of the premise, he goes to work for a telemarketer, and Danny Glover's in the movie, and he's talking to the main character, whose name is Cassius Green. Cash is green. I mean, it was some of the some it's of the metaphors little, are a little on the nose. It's a little on the nose. <laughs> but the it starts out. He tells him, you know, he's he's not having any luck as a telemarketer. So Danny Glover tells him to use his white voice. Yeah, the main the main character is, is a a black guy. And he, Danny Glover's like, well, use your white voice. And he's like, what do you mean use my white voice or whatever? And it's it's really funny because they they have David Cross and Patton Oswalt doing the white voices for these actors. And it's 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 quite amusing. It's it, it's very good. It's a very funny movie. Really smart. It's yes, it's it's really it's a good movie. You guys should go see it. We will all talk about it. Yeah. So what do you got this week? This week, you want me to go first? Yeah, why not? I've got a spy story. Cool. It is cool. It's a story of a mastermind of fabrication, manipulation, and strategy. His name is... The Joker? Juan, Juan Pajul Garcia. And he is the spy who nearly single-handedly ensured German defeat without ever lifting a rifle from World War II. What's his name? Juan Pajul Garcia. He was a double agent 
and he was awarded top medals by both sides of the war. Nice. Wow. And the Germans That's a really the good. Germans never knew that he was working as a double agent. Okay. I mean, till you know, the 80s. Wow. Yeah. So he was the most successful spy in all of history by most accounts, just because he it, he was never caught. It was never. That's crazy. Let me tell you the whole story. He was ordinary looking. He was married. He was balding. He wore big glasses and he didn't possess any type of high tech weaponry or fancy cars. He just used strategy. He was born in Barcelona, Spain in the year 1914. I was going to say, he sounds Spanish. How did they not notice? But okay. He was born in Barcelona, Spain in 1914. His parents owned a dye factory and his mother was Catholic. After he finished his studies, he did six months of military service and he really didn't feel he was he was suited for military career. He hated horseback. He he really didn't feel like he had the noble qualities needed for to be a soldier. Yeah. And he did serve during the Spanish Civil War. And he worked at that time for both the Nationalist and the Republican side. How do he you, was wow. He was proud that he had managed to serve both sides without ever firing a bullet for either side. So after his discharge, he met his wife. They married and they had a child. When he was navigating the intricacies of war, he realized two things. One, he was really good at fabrication, which helped him stay out of most of the war altogether. The the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. And two, he despised fascism and communism. Both of these things became very important as World War Two set in upon Europe. In 1940, it was the early days of the Civil War, or I'm sorry, not the Civil War, Jesus Christ, World War II, not the Civil War, World War II. And Pahul was working as a hotel manager in Madrid, and he decided, you know, he couldn't just sit out. He had to make some kind of contribution for the good of humanity, and he wanted to oppose um, the Franco regime. So he wanted to help Britain. So he approaches the British three separate times, including once through his wife. But they showed no interest in employing him as a spy. So he decided instead to establish himself as a German agent before approaching the British again. Okay. And that way he would then offer his services as a double agent because gotcha. he'd already be. Right. He'd already be a German. So Pahul created an identity as a fanatical neo-Nazi Spanish government official <laughs> who could travel to London on official business. He obtained a fake Spanish passport, fooling a printer into thinking that Pahul worked for the, the embassy in Lisbon. He contracted German, contacted German intelligence in Madrid. This guy was codenamed Federico. And he accepted Pahul and gave him a crash course in espionage, including secret writing. He gave him a bottle of invisible ink, a code book, 600 pounds for expenses. And his instructions were to move to Britain and recruit a network of British spies. Wow. Yeah. This guy's in a genius. Instead, he moved to Lisbon and as using a tourist guide to Britain, references books and magazines from the library. He created seemingly credible reports that appeared to be coming from London. He claimed to be traveling around Britain and submitted his travel expenses based on fares listed on the railway railway guide. Nice. Yeah. 
A slight difficulty is that he did not mm. understand the pre-decimal system of currency that was used in Britain. So pounds, shilling, pence. Yeah. So he was unable to total his expenses. He would simply itemize them and then send he, he would send the total later. Right. During this time, he created an extensive network of fictitious subagents. Wow. So none of these people existed. His whole network did not exist. Nice. They were living in different parts of Britain because he never actually visited the UK. He would make mistakes such as claiming his contact in Glasgow would do anything for a liter of wine. Not realizing <laughs> that's not what the Scottish drink. <laughs> his reports were intercepted via the ultra program and seemed so credible that British counterintelligence MI5, which is who was in place for World War Two. Yeah. They launched a spy hunt for him. <laughs> thinking that he was for real. Meanwhile, he's just trying to join their organization. Meanwhile, he's like, I just want to be your spy. Right. Like, why won't Pretending you let me help you? to be a spy you? for these guys. Right. In February 1942, he approached the United States after it had entered the war, contacting U.S. Navy Lieutenant Patrick Demarest, who was in the Naval Attaché office in Lisbon. And Demarest immediately recognized his potential and contacted his British counterparts. Hmm. The British had become so aware that someone had been misinforming the Germans and realized the value after Kriegsmarine, which is the German Navy of the time. Yeah. Wasted all their resources attempting to hunt down a non-existent convoy. Nice. That Pohl had had reported to them. Wow. Yeah. So he moved to Britain. In April of 42, and he was given the code name Bavril, which is apparently a drink concentrate. It's by like in the same same vein as like Vegemite. Oh, okay. It's not something that we have over here. After he passed his security check, they changed his name <laughs> to Garbo, as in Greta Garbo. If you've ever heard of Agent Garbo, yeah, that's him. Okay, I haven't. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, he started working with um, Tomas Harris, who is a fluent Spanish spe speaker, and he helped Pahul get his wife and child moved to Britain, and they were all good. Pahul had been supposedly communicating with the Germans via carrier, and a KM, uh, KLM pilot willing to carry the messages to and from Lisbon for cash. This meant that the message deliver deliveries were limited to the flight schedule. In 1943, responding to German requests for speedier communication, Bahul and Harris created a fictional radio operator. Nice. Radio became the preferred method of communication at this point. On occasion, he had to invent reasons why his agents had failed to report easily available information that the Germans would eventually know about. Yeah. For example, he reported that his fabricated Liverpool agents had fallen ill before the fleet movement and that he was unable to report the event. <laughs> and to support his story, that event agent eventually died with an obituary that he placed in the local newspaper to further evidence to convince the Germans. Wow. This guy was, like, serious. The Germans were also then persuaded by Pahol to pay a pension to the agent's widow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. In January 1944, the Germans told Pahul that they believed that the Allies were preparing for a large-scale invasion of Europe and that they looked to him to keep them informed of all these developments. The invasion was called Operation Overlord. 
That's the code name. And I don't know if you know this. Do you know what that's the code name for? No. The Battle of Normandy. Oh, okay. So Paul played the leading role in Operation Fortitude, which was the deception campaign to conceal Overlord. Oh, OK. So that way they could do Normandy. So he sent over 500 radio message messages between January of 44 and D-Day, which is in June. At times, more than 20 messages per day. During the planning for the Normandy Beach invasion, the Allies decided that it was vitally important to mislead the German leaders. So they told them that it would be happening at the Strait of Dover. Yeah. In order to maintain his credibility, it was decided that Garbo should forewarn the Germans of the timing and some of the details of the actual invasion of Normandy. Although sending it too late for them to be able to take effective action. Nice. Special arrangements were made with the German radio operators to be listening to, Gar- to Garbo through the night of June 5th to 6th, 1944, which was D-Day. Right. Um, using the story that the subagent was about to arrive with his information. However, when he made this call at 3 a.m., no reply was received from German operators until 8 a.m. Nice. The Germans had the information. Oh. Little late, but not as late as they said. Wow. So Garbo was able to... Um, add more operational details to this message when he realized they weren't listening. So he was able to give more and more and more. And then this increased his standings with the Germans. Wow. Yeah. Garbo told his German contacts that he was disgusted that his message was missing. I cannot accept excuses or negligence. Were it not for my ideals, I would abandon this work. (laughs) 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 On June 9th, which is three days after D-Day, Garbo sent a message to German intelligence that was passed on to Adolf Hitler and uh, German high command. Garbo said, Garbo, I don't know who Garbo is. Garbo said that he had conferred with his top top agents and developed an order of battle showing 75 divisions in Britain, when really there were only about 50. Hmm. Part of the fortitude plan was to convince the Germans that the fictitious formation, including the U.S. Army comprising of 150,000 men, commanded by General Patton, was actually stationed in the south and the east of Britain. So the deception was supported by fake planes, inflatable tanks, nice, and vans traveling around the area transmitting bogus radio chatter. Wow, I didn't know all this was going on. Right. Crazy. Back in World War II. Yeah. Imagine what's going on now. So I imagine things are a lot harder now, though. Right. Garbo's message pointed out that units from the formation had not participated in the invasion and therefore the first landing should be considered a diversion. A German message to Madrid sent two days later said all reports received last week from Alaric Arabel, which is actually Pahul's German code name. Yeah. Have been confirmed without exception and are described as extremely valuable. A post-war examination of German records found that during Operation Fortitude, No fewer than 62 of Pahul's reports were included in the OKW intelligence summaries. Yeah. OKW supported, or they rather, they accepted Garbo's reports so completely that they kept two armored divisions and 19 infantry divisions waiting for the second invasion through July and August of 1944. Holy shit. Yeah. The German commander-in-chief in the West... Field Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt 
I don't know if it's GERD or GERD. Let's but, go with GERD. Yeah. I mean, it's like gastro, gastroesophageal reflux yeah. disorder. It's like GERD. Refused to allow General Erwin Rommel to move his three divisions to Normandy. There were more German troops in that region in two months after Normandy than there had been in, on D-Day. Huh. He really fucked them over. That's great. Yeah. So in late June, Garbo was instructed by the Germans to report on the falling of a V-1 flying bombs, finding no way to give false information without arousing suspicions and being unwilling to give correct information. Harris, his handler yeah. from earlier, Tomas, arranged to have Garbo arrested. He returned to duty a few days later and now had to, had to avoid London, quote unquote, because, you know, for the, the Germans thought he had to avoid London. Right. Because they were on to him. Yeah. The Germans paid Garbo 340,000 American dollars Jesus. to support his network of agents, <laughs> which at this point were 27 fabricated humans. Wow. They weren't even real people. So that's just like his money. As Alaric Arable, Pahul was awarded the Iron Cross second class for his services to the German war effort. <laughs> the award was normally reserved for frontline fighting men and required Hitler's personal authorization. Wow. The Iron Cross was presented via radio and he received the physical medal <laughs> from one of his German handlers after the war had ended. As Garbo... He received MBE, which is the most excellent order of the British Empire. So it's another award yeah. from King George VI a couple months later. So he received that in November of 44, and he received the other award in July of 44. The Nazis never realized they had been fooled. Wow. So he is one of the few, if not the only, to receive decorations from both sides during World War II. That's Af amazing. After the Second World War, he was really scared of, like, retaliation because yeah. he was afraid they were going to find out. Right. So with the help of MI5, he went to Angola and faked his death from malaria in 1949. Nice. Then he moved to Venezuela, where he lived in anonymity, running a bookstore and gift shop. <laughs> On the 40th anniversary of D-Day in 1984, he went to Normandy to tour the beaches and pay respect to the dead. And in 1988, at the age of 74, he died. At his home in Venezuela. Wow, that's a really cool story. That's fucking awesome, isn't it? Isn't that the craziest little spy story? Is there not a movie of that? Is there a movie of that? There I'd are books. That. Books? Oh, there are no. books of I'm that. More of a movie guy. Yeah, there are books. Oh, I read a comic book. Are we going to talk about that? Yeah. Well, we will get into that. Let's, let's, so Maggie read a comic book, guys. So I, I here, here's how I decided which comic book to, to have her read. Because I, it, it was it was hard because I wanted it to be something that she would enjoy, hopefully, which we'll find out if she did. But the main thing was I wanted it to be one contained story and I didn't want to do like a whole trade paperback because I knew she would if I handed her a trade paperback that had four to six comics in it, she would not read it. So I hardly read the one. What do you mean you hardly read it? I bitched the whole time, every couple pages. I was like, is it over? <laughs> so I decided to have her read Alan Moore and Brian Bowen's Killing Joke, which I talked about last week. The 19, It's a one-shot comic. It's about 50 pages. It's a double-sized comic, but it's it's not in any kind of continuity. It's literally a, 
a standalone story. It's a Batman story, Batman Joker story, basically. And I decided, okay, this is short. It's contained. There's shit. I don't need to. I don't need her to understand anything before reading it. I don't need her to know what the situation is. It's it's its own thing. And so I downloaded a copy of it because I, although I I have a first edition printing, obviously I don't want people touching that. So I I trusted her with her iPad though. Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. I'm about to go through all of your long boxes and find it, and then I'm gonna lick it. I'm gonna lick every page. So, tell us what you thought of your first comic book reading experience. Tell us what you thought of the medium, as well as the story. The medium makes it very fast. Yes, a lot of information very quickly. Because it's it's literally, it sits right in between books and movies. I mean, that's what storyboards are essentially for movies. Yeah. They're essentially comic books. Typically not as well drawn or anything unless you count the ones the which Wachowskis did for the Matrix movies which literally are comic books basically did but they ever bind those together and sell them like as comics I don't think so that would that's a real missed opportunity right there yeah so I thought it was very fast however I already knew the story so I think you must have watched the Killing Joke animation the, the adapted it came out like a couple of years ago with me. I don't think you intentionally watched it. I'm guessing you were in the living room when I was watching it. Yeah. And you were paying more attention I'm, than you let on. Is I'm, what I'm one guessing. of those people who cannot block out whatever is on TV and will get sucked in. It doesn't matter what it is. So you are, see, I didn't know that when I gave you the comic book, but yeah. it doesn't really matter. I read it. I was like, oh, I know all about like Joker's backstory. Like, like I knew that that Joker's backstory with the yeah. the red hood and all that. Like yeah. I knew I knew it. So yeah, you must have. And I was like, the only thing I didn't remember was, was uh, the Barbara Gordon getting shot. But I, even that, I was like, oh. <laughs> what did you think of the ending? It ended with a stupid joke, and then it was just over. It was really anticlimactic. Well, here's the thing, though. A lot of people read into that ending, though, because the name of it is The Killing Joke, right? Yeah. And he tells a joke at the end, and they're both laughing. And the last thing you see is Batman puts his hand close to the Joker's neck, and then, like, it, like, cuts away, so to speak. It just shows the rain. So a lot of readers thought, theorized that Batman was choking was killing the Joker and laughing maniacally as he did it was no, the thought. I didn't, read didn't get that. that. I didn't. I didn't get that either. But that's just that was one of the theories oh, of, no. of how it actually ended. No. Uh, yeah. It was. I was but really. But the medium itself, though, let's discuss that because again, it would be fine if I was interested in the story. So would you read a a, a comic book adaptation of something like it? Yeah. Because again, you know we. You and I, one thing we, we reference a lot of times is, is, you know, I know it's specifically from it because I remember when I when I read it years ago. The only thing like the only thing I really remember is and, and this is all of Stephen King's books that I've read is he is so detailed in his descriptions of the most minute like and uninteresting yeah, details. It's, it's like that times. in a lot of his books, like Pet Cemetery, yeah. talk, like describing the new house that they move into at the beginning. See, and I don't. I read it's that like, book. Whew. I don't remember that. But I, uh, the one thing I remember is the beginning of it, later. and him spending like ten pages describing the water trickling down the sewer or something. 
that's what I remember the most yeah, about that book. Was like whole, Jesus Christ. He's got whole chapters devoted to like what a teacup looks like when you fill it with tea. Yeah, like, and I mean, I love Stephen King. I'm not bashing Stephen no, King. No, Stephen King's amazing, but sometimes that's not what you're in the mood for. Exactly. So a comic book is a perfect remedy for that. But again, I would have to be in the mood for it. Like I'm not in the mood for anything. I I actually went through <laughs> in the mood compiled, for anything. <laughs> no, not for any kind of books. I went and compiled a bunch of like regular books that I want to read that yeah. we have that we own. Yeah. that I want to read. I haven't picked up those. So I'm not more inclined to pick up comics. Like I'm not in the mood for any kind of written medium. It's like I'm full. I'm full up on written because of the internet. <laughs> now, I say I know the answer to this already, but having finally actually read a comic book though, do you have a distaste for the medium still? Do you think it's juvenile? It's not juvenile. I, I swear to God, I saw a penis. <laughs> I don't think you did. I think the that shading. was I think that was an inking choice. They, okay, well, he he chose to ink it in a penis shape and flesh colored. <laughs> but that's why my point is but, I thought that. But you, you don't wear that's a, that's a lot of people, a lot of people frown on comics. They just think they're for kids, and and you know initially they were. But comics have were, very much grown up. They had small like little people. Yeah, the creepy little, uh, like, they were like They're dwarves. like dominatrix dwarves. Just, yeah. They're like fetishist dwarves. They had, like, bondage gear on, but then also fishnets and high heels. Like, that's not juvenile. <laughs> I don't want my... Uh, no thanks. Yeah. No, it's it's fine. I mean, it's not... I'm not trying to read it all the time, but... So would you read a comic book in the future? As long as it was something I actually wanted to read. Yeah. But see how quick it is? It's a it's such a quick read. You get all that information very quickly. It, it, that's that's the main thing I like about it. And also, it's a visual medium. I, I'd rather. I, I'd rather see a really good artist. Draw something than rely on my own terrible imagination. I have a pretty solid imagination. Yeah. However, it is faster. Yeah. It and does. It conveys no, a lot of information quickly. And it conveys exactly what they want you to think. Yeah, like, and that's what's cool about comic book panels is, like, the framing and everything. Like, they can get that one key moment of a scene, basically, and get you to focus on that, take that away. That's what was so cool about seeing the original Sin City movie is they basically frame for frame put the comic book on the screen. You know, obviously yeah. there was motion and stuff, so there were, you know, some in-between-the-panels type stuff going on, but the way it, it literally got every panel on the screen, it was it was really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things. I do like it for the fact that it isn't up to interpretation. So if you're not looking for a long, like book where you get invested in the characters and you have your own thoughts and you have your own everything. Yeah. This is very like, this is what's happening. Right. This is how it looks. <laughs> this is what was said. It's very not open for interpretation. So, well, then again, I, I could have you read, uh, no, Grant Morrison. Me. I have me read anything. Ar Arkham Asylum. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm all set. Because that one's different. That's a lot different, and it is very much open to interpretation. It depends on how the comp. This one, uh, Killing Joke, is very straightforward. Killing Joke is very straightforward, and I was like, yeah, going mad sounds kind of fun. Like, they need to glamorize that a little less. I think I sympathize <laughs> a little bit more with the Joker than I would have well, it's, it's definitely more of a Joker story, for yeah. sure. All right, so I am going to continue 
my selective history of Batman with this week a focus on the 1989 Tim Burton Batman film. When do you think this movie started development? It was released June 23rd, 1989. And it was intended to be a blockbuster, though, right? Yes. So 86. Okay, that's a reasonable guess. So it actually started in the late 70s. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that surprised me, too. That's why I asked, because the most people... Yeah, 86, you know, two to three years. years. To film. I mean, yeah, it, it makes sense. So, so in the late 70s, Batman's popularity was waning. You know, the. <laughs> the oh, the, is that not a pun? That was not a pun. It's Bruce I like that you thought it was. But, and you did your Will Arnett laugh. <laughs> That's funny. It was funny. <laughs> uh, so. But yeah, the. the the TV series ended in, you know, 67 or 68. Um, anyway, so Batman's, you know, just just like always, Batman, you know, uh, when the Dark Knight series was out, Batman's popularity was very high. Right now, Batman's popularity not so high, right? Right. Well, if it, there's nothing to keep it top of mind. Right. People forget about it. All right. So CBS was interested in producing a Batman in outer space film. Nope. Uh, producers Benjamin Melnicker and Michael Uslan purchased the film rights of Batman from DC Comics on October 3rd of 1979. It was Uslan's wish to, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, I'm just going to keep saying that though. Uh, it was his wish to make the definitive dark, serious version of Batman the way Bob Kane and Bill Finger had envisioned him in 1939, a creature of the night stalking criminals in the shadows. All right, so this guy, Richard Maybaum, was approached to write a script with Guy Hamilton to direct. I don't know who either one of those people are. Right. Uh, but they both turned down the offer. Yeah. Ah, good for them. Good career right. moves. Because they went on to do such films as <laughs> question mark, question mark, question mark. Right. Well, again, you know, this kind of makes sense, too. I don't I don't know if it mentions it's in here. Um, okay. They do mention it. But it, this was around the time that 1978 was when Superman came out. That was a a big hit. Well, see, to me, it's weird to me. Okay, that that Batman was in development at that point or like near that point. Yeah. Because to me, Superman feels so old. Doesn't it? It just feels old. Really does. And it's just weird to me that they were even working on Tim Burton's Batman or yeah, Tim Burton wasn't working on it. But you know what I mean? They were working on Batman at that point because they feel like a generation apart they don't even feel like a decade apart they feel like a generation apart yeah that's weird all right columbia pictures and united artists were among uh those to turn down doing the film because he was pitching something that was well, dark and they wanted the campy batman they thought that oh. that's what yeah that's what they wanted and i he, thought they he were pitching him in outer space that's well, not dark that was cbs was interested oh, in okay. that this okay, michael okay. uslan wanted to do something dark and serious but they wanted it to be more campy. So Columbia Pictures and United Artists were like, no, we, we don't think that's marketable or whatever. So disappointed, Uslan then wrote a script titled Return of the Batman to give the film industry a better idea of his vision for the film. He later compared its tone to that of The Dark Knight Returns, which was written by Frank Miller. I touched on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but his script predated it by about six years. In November 1979. Wait, his script predated The Dark Knight Returns? Yes. Oh. He later compared it to... The Dark Knight Returns. 
which if you don't have to produce it, it's probably like, oh, yeah, it's a lot like Dark Knight Returns. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? It's really good like right. that. You don't have to you don't have to answer. But I think he was just saying like tonally, though, you know, yeah. he's going for like a dark. I'm guessing it, it it probably wasn't quite as violent as as Dark Knight Returns. <laughs> like, oh, you know what I mean? Right. It's like that famous uh, Frank Miller comic. <laughs> right. You know, that groundbreaking comic book that brought Batman back into the spotlight. It was yeah. just like that. It was just like that. I was I was going to do that. He's all like same. <laughs> So in November of 79, producers John Peters and Peter Goober. Uh, Goober? Uh, G-U-B-E-R. It's like Hans Goob- Gruber, but without the R. So Goober. Goober. <laughs> Gubber? Goober? I don't know. It's Goober. It's Peter Goober. But their Peter names Goober. are on. Like, What's funny is like this is night, November 79. Producers John Peters and Peter. Their names are on 1989 Batman. Are they? Ten years later. They, but yeah, Peter they, Goober? Peter yeah. Goober. Peter Goober. I <laughs> Peter Juber. That sounds worse. <laughs> <laughs> like, Jesus. Yikes. I, it's Peter Goober. There's no R. All right. Peter Goober. All right. So Melnicker and Uslan became executive producers. The four of them felt it was best to pattern the film's development after that of the 1978 Superman movie. So then they pitched to Universal Studios. They turned it down. So no movie studios are involved yet. But the project was announced with a budget of $15 million in July of 1980 at the Comic Art Convention in New York. It was announced in 1980. Yeah, and now this is when 1989's Batman was announced. Warner Brothers, the studio behind the successful Superman film franchise, decided to also accept and produce Batman. Now, I should point out, Warner Brothers owns DC Comics now, but this obviously predates. I don't know. I don't remember when that purchase took place. I, I could either. look that up. I didn't research it. But DC Comics owns or no, Warner Brothers owns DC Comics outright. So they they're going to be producing their stuff. All the DC stuff. Yeah. For- and they have been for for some time now. I, I don't know when that that deal went through, though. So Tom Mankiewicz completed a script titled The Batman in June of 1983, focusing on Batman and Dick Grayson's origins with the Joker and Rupert Thorne as villains and Silver St. Cloud as the romantic interest. These are Rupert Thorne and Silver St. Cloud. They're in the Batman comics. They were big in like the 70s and 80s in those comics. Yeah, I've never heard of them. Yeah. Uh, Mankiewicz took inspiration from the limited series called Batman Strange Apparitions, which, which was written by Steve Englehart, comic book writer. Uh, comic book artist Marshall Rogers, who had worked with Englehart on Strange Apparitions, was hired for concept art. The Batman was then announced in late 1983 for a mid-1985 release date on a budget of $20 million. Originally, Mankiewicz had wanted an unknown actor for Batman. Uh, William Holden for James Gordon, David Niven as Alfred Pennyworth, and Peter O'Toole as the Penguin, who Mankiewicz wanted to portray as a mobster with low body temperature. Holden died in 1981 and Niven in 1983, so this never came to pass. (laughs) Why were they dying? uh, I don't know why David Niven died. I don't know. Well, I don't know why any of them died. I'm guessing they were just older. I don't know. Hmm. Number of filmmakers were attached to Mankiewicz's script, including Ivan Reitman and Joe Dante. Joe Dante did uh, Gremlins. Oh, yeah, that makes sense that he would be tied to it, though, because Gremlins was shot on that Warner Brothers lot we were on. Yeah. So he was clearly Gremlins must be a Warner Brothers movie. I'm trying to think what else I think. Did he do the Burbs, too? I don't know. That's a great movie. That movie was was shot in California and I attended Universal Studios when they were filming. Let's see now. He did. 
I got to find out real quick, a little sidebar here on, on Joe Dante. I'm really curious what, because I know he's done some other stuff that I like. All right, he did The Howling, which is a werewolf movie. He did uh, a yeah. segment of the Twilight Zone movie. He did Gremlins. He did Inner Space. He did The Burbs. That's such a good movie. He did Gremlins 2. Let's do the making of The Burbs. <laughs> I, I do like The Burbs a lot. That's like that's a great, great flick. That is such a good movie. Gremlins 2, Small Soldiers. All right, back, back, back to topic here. Right, the fuck? <laughs> All very interesting. What to me. has happened? I couldn't remember what else he had done, but I knew the burbs and Sean takes apparently. great pride in memorizing IMDb and being able to spot <laughs> I don't that. read IMDb. One of his favorite things. That's to not do. a thing I do. I just I catch names, and if a, a, an actor's performance sticks in my mind, I like to know who that actor is. He also has a photographic memory, so he reads IMDb once, and he'll be able to recite that guy's movies for the rest of his life. Well, like we we saw that movie yesterday. Sorry to bother you. And now I'm going to be following Boots Riley, the writer director, because yeah. I, I like his style a lot. He's got it. He's got a very cool style of directing. And I'm, I'm very curious what he does next. That was a really good movie yesterday. You guys should definitely go see it. All right. So uh, Ivan Reitman and Joe Dante were attached at one point. Reitman wanted to cast Bill Murray as Batman and Eddie Murphy as Robin. So you can kind of tell where, where he was going with his, <laughs> your face. Hi. And now, I don't know if you know this, but they wanted Eddie Murphy in Ghostbusters as well. Ivan Reitman was originally wanted Eddie Murphy as uh, uh, the Winston Winston's Edmore character. All right. Nine rewrites were performed by nine separate writers. Most of them were based on that, on Steve Englehart's strange apparition storyline, which I have to admit, I have never read. Okay. Is it, have you never read it because you just never have had the opportunity or is it just like... Basically, yeah. I've never looked it up. It might be available in trade paperback form, but DC does not have a great comic book reading service like Marvel does. Marvel has Marvel Unlimited where you can literally go back and re for, for a nominal fee, go back and reread whatever Marvel comics you want pretty much all the yeah. way up to six months ago. That's how current they go. So you can read Spider-Man's first appearance, Fantastic Four number one, whatever. You know, you can read 80s comics, whatever you want. But DC doesn't have anything like that, unfortunately. Otherwise, I would I would probably look that up. So after the financial success of Tim Burton's Pee Wee's Big Adventure in 1985, oh, a good movie. Warner Brothers hired Tim Burton to direct Batman. Tim Burton had then-girlfriend Julie Hickson write a 30-page film treatment, feeling the previous script by Mank Wentz was campy. And Steve Englehart's, I have read some of his stories. I wouldn't say it's campy. It's definitely darker than like that TV show and stuff, but it has a very 70s vibe to it. You yeah. know what I mean? It's it's not it's it's not real dark stuff at all. All right. So the success of The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke rekindled Warner Brothers interest in a film adaptation. Burton was initially not a comic book fan, but he was impressed by the dark and serious t tone found in both The Dark Knight Returns and The Killing Joke. He was impressed with the killing joke, that thing I just read. Yeah, I I don't know how you couldn't be impressed with it. I, I love that story. And <laughs> act like you're not impressed. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I really don't know. how you, you didn't take anything away from that, though? You didn't think nah. that was a cool origin story for the Joker? Nah, but I will tell you what it did do. Kind of sad. It's, it's, it's a sad. It makes you feel bad for the Joker, and it makes you think that, well, I could go mad, then I don't have well, to go with my Well, that's his point, deal. is yeah. that, but you see Gordon and Batman resist it. Well, I mean, Batman went a little bad, let's be honest. Batman's batshit. 
I mean, not, not, oh. no pun intended. Sorry, I can't help it. This is going to start another fugitive no. thing. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm on my meds today. Right? Like shit house, whorehouse, cat house. <laughs> All right. So Warner Brothers enlisted the aid of Steve Englehart to write a new treatment in March of 1986. And like Michael went to script, it was based on his own strange apparitions and included Silver St. Cloud, Dick Grayson, Joker, and Rupert Thorne, as well as a cameo appearance by the Penguin. Warner Brothers was impressed, but Englehart felt there were too many characters. He removed the Penguin and Dick Grayson in his second treatment, finishing in May of 1986. So we're closer was, to the timeline. Okay, so where I thought, which is where they would get serious about it a couple of years before it came out, so that way they have time to get everything done. So Burton approached Sam Ham. Sam Ham. Yes, yeah, Sam Ham and Peter, Peter Goober. <laughs> and again, Sam Ham's name is on the movie too. These are I did have those credits memorized at one point as a kid. You're, yeah. I'm glad you put your skills to such good use. <laughs> I don't have any skills. You have incredible spelling skills. <laughs> right, the most useless skill ever in the day of in the day and age of autocorrect. Yeah, now in the day of autocorrect, you don't even use use the right word anymore. Like it'll just change it. It'll change it to a totally different word. That is weird about autocorrect. It will literally it will change real words that are spelled correctly to completely different words. It changes us to yeah, like to yeah, like for to, on your phone. Yeah, for me, it might change it to as. Or something. It does stuff like that. I, I fucking it hate it. It changes U.S. to Y.A. And I don't know why. But then words that I have spelled incorrectly because, you know. It just underlines. Yeah, it's, it's just, just like, like good luck not a word, that dude. Out. <laughs> like when I, when I, every, I, if I type the word three. With three E's. Instead, because I, I hit E, because I got the fat fingers. I hit E three times instead of R-E-E. It just underlines it. It's like, it's the. <laughs> you have no idea what I'm trying to say. Nothing. <laughs> You got nothing there. It, it doesn't correct anything. it to anything. It could be anything. Oh like, what gosh. do you want? All right. So Burton approached Sam Ham, a comic book fan, to write Sam the screenplay. Ham decided not to use an origin story. Thank God. Feeling that flashbacks would be more suitable and that unlocking the mystery would become part of the storyline. He reasoned, you totally destroy your credibility if you show the literal process by which Bruce Wayne becomes Batman, which Christopher Nolan did in Batman Begins. So I don't know if that's necessarily a true statement, but that was his belief at the time. Yeah. <laughs> It was 1989. Right. That was 1986. It's 1986. That's <laughs> five. Ham replaced Silver St. Cloud with Vicky Vale and Rupert Thorne with his own creation, Carl Grissom. And those are... Vicky Vale already existed in comics. Yeah, she was in that one I just read. Like, yeah, yeah. Vicky Vale's been around. Her headline was she's in. She's been it. around forever. Um, but I, I'm trying to remember Silver St. Cloud. I think she was another... Just oh, like, is that a girl? Yeah. She was... Silver. She literally had like silver hair and she I don't think she's not a hero or anything. If I remember correctly, she's just another another form. Of she's like a, she's like a Hilton heiress type of character. You know what I mean? Like one of those one of Bruce Wayne's contemporaries kind of thing. Yeah, she's just a and, and love interest. So Silver Saint Cloud, Vicky Vale, what year did they finally stop doing the alliteration? <laughs> I what don't know. <laughs> I don't know. All right, so Ham completed his script in October of 1986 and demoted Dick Grayson to a cameo rather than a supporting character. One scene in Ham's script had a young James Gordon on duty the night of murder of the murder of Bruce Wayne's parents. When Ham's script was rewritten, the scene was deleted, reducing it to a photo in the Gotham Globe newspaper scene in the film. And then again, in The Batman Begins, they kind of used that again, where, actually, where Gordon was around. Um... Warner Brothers was less willing to move forward on development, despite their enthusiasm for Ham's script. 
which Batman co-creator Bob Kane greeted with positive feedback. Ham's script was then bootlegged at various comic book stores in the United States. Batman the film was finally given the green light to commence pre-production in April of 1988. That seems like a short amount of time, right? Right. To get a big movie like that yeah, together. Especially one that was intended to be a blockbuster. It's just over a year. It was given the green light after the success of Tim Burton's Beetlejuice now in 1988. So he had Pee-wee's Big Adventure and then they had Beetlejuice and they're like, okay, I guess we'll go, we'll I move ahead with this guy. I guess you're not a garbage person. You're right. a pretty decent director. Now this, this part is funny to me. When comic book fans found out about Burton directing the film with Michael Keaton starring in the lead role, controversy arose over the tone and direction Batman was going in. They started, there was like a campaign. So this has been going on before the internet with upset nerds saying, hey, I don't like this, don't do this, this bad, without even seeing it, basically. I'm of the mind, don't start your letter writing campaign until you've at least seen the finished product. You know what I mean? Or ever. Or, or I mean, I, th I think you do have to express your disdain because if you, if you go, if you pay to see a movie because. Oh, are we talking about Ghostbusters? The Paul Feig Ghostbusters? We could talk about Ghostbusters. We could talk about the recent Star picture, Wars movies. I have a picture of Sean getting a <laughs> refund at that movie because. At what we movie? Were at Paul Feig's Ghostbusters. <laughs> he was. At what goes? Oh, Paul Feig's. That's what you're saying. I didn't know what you're. I was like, Pulfy? What's Paul Feig's Ghostbusters? Is that work? Is that slang? I don't know what that is. <laughs> we call that Ghostbusters 2016. Okay, so that movie is so terrible that Sean was rocking back and forth in the theater like real bad. And Mason, who normally doesn't have any opinion on movies, was like, "We should go." <laughs> he was like, "We should go." So we all left, and Sean went up. And was like, I need a refund. I can't expose my family to this crap or some stuff. Like, what did you say? I was very nice about it. I just explained this was a terrible movie and that I wasn't willing to pay for it. And I wasn't going to make my family sit through it. And they issued us a full Yeah, refund. I didn't know. Nobody pitched a fit or gave me. They, they looked to see how long, how much of the movie we had watched. And then. It they, was not long. We were in that. We saw a good 30 minutes of it. Yeah. We, we and Sean was rocking back and forth like he was on the verge. Let, and allow me to explain. I was the only person. Ghostbusters is my all, the original Ghostbusters. I four Ghostbusters is my all time favorite film. And despite having seen the trailer for Ghostbusters 2016, my my justification for going to see it opening weekend was, hey, maybe they're being smart and just they're not like showing us the good stuff. Like, Super Troopers looked dumb in yeah, the commercial. Yeah, it, it didn't have a good trailer. It looked like a terrible the Solo, commercial. the Solo movie didn't have a good trailer. Right. You know, sometimes the trailer's not great. And I was like, okay, this trailer might just suck. Yeah. Maybe the movie's better. I like Paul Feig's Bridesmaids a lot. You know what I mean? I thought that was a really funny movie. However, I hate all his cameos on the Joel, Joel McHale show with Joel McHale. <laughs> so, I mean. Anyway, but you know, I enjoyed Bridesmaids. I like Ghostbusters. I liked like three quarters of the cast and, you know, Melissa McCarthy is okay. But the, you know, I like the other three. I was like, it'll be better, right? It was not. <laughs> it was fucking awful. It was worse than the trailers. They did show the best stuff in the trailers. You like Leslie Jones? I think she's really funny. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I think she's funny. Like on Saturday Night I didn't, I honestly, at the time, I didn't really know who she was. I didn't watch Saturday Night Live, but having seen her on Saturday Night Live since then, yeah, uh, you don't like her. I think she's very funny. I mean, she's fine. I don't. So, I don't like her, but she's. Well, no, I'm not like, like a fan. 
I'm a I'm a Kristen Wiig fan. I like Kristen Wiig a lot. Kristen Wiig fan. Yeah, but, and I'm not even a Kate McKinnon fan. I think I'm Leslie becoming, Jones is funnier than Kate McKinnon. See, and I think I think Kate McKinnon's really funny. I think she, I think she can't. I think she is overused on oh, Saturday yeah. Night Live, though. Well, that's Saturday Night Live's fault. That's not her fault. Well, no. But, oh yeah, I, I'm not saying she she's not funny. No, she's very funny. Like on comedians, cars getting coffee. Yeah, she was very funny on that. Which but is again, like, with, and Kristen Wiig wasn't. You noticed Kristen Wiig was very. She cared about what she looked like. She was very hipster. I thought she was funny though. Okay, I did. I All thought right. she was funny. But she McKinnon, was very funny on Flight of the Concourse. Oh my God, she was hilarious at Bra 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 Bra. My name's Bra Bra. My name's Bra Bra. Like yeah, she's. But anyway, at the time, sing. the only actress I I I really really liked was Kristen Wiig. I knew Kate McKinnon was very popular, and I looked up and and I was aware of her, and. Like Leslie Jones, I didn't really know anything about her at the time. Anyway, the point of this is Sean requested a refund. He could not sit through it. It was fucking there's nothing worse than a comedy that isn't funny. Like when the jokes aren't landing. Yeah, I know. Actually, that's not true. There are things worse than that. You know, what's worse than that is then when the, the unfunny jokes aren't landing with you, with with yourself and your but every other people in the theater are laughing and you're like, oh, you Ooh. fucking morons. You yeah, think this is rough. funny? This is fucking terrible. Like, I can't help but be judgmental of people laughing at it. It's like family guy. It's like, this isn't funny. This is, these are these are like the lowest common denominator jokes that anybody could make at yeah. any given time. They're not clever. They're they're, they're fucking terrible. Anyway. But yeah. Ghostbusters. Going back to. Uh, oh, by the way, Batman. we revisited. I, I made myself sit through it at home when I could take breaks and stuff. We own it. We do, listen. That was <laughs> my listen. digital, my digital video account, my voodoo account. They did this whole thing where they merged voodoo with Amazon, with Apple, with all these other movie services. And when, when you linked your accounts, they gave you five movies and you didn't get to pick them. Everybody got the same five movies. And one of them, of course, was fucking Ghostbusters. And that's <laughs> in my collection now next to the actual good Ghostbusters movies. Oh, so funny. Yeah. Anyway, tell me more about we Batman. Own but we, we, got, we got through the whole movie. It was fucking awful. Wait, I can't I don't, believe. I don't think I did. Yeah. I think I made you watch it with me. I wasn't going to sit through that shit alone. There are certain things that I can tune out. And like just garbage is one of them. <sighs> it was so fucking bad. It was so. It was, I can't believe that movie got greenlit. Oof. So fucking terrible. Just, it really, just not funny. It's a real shame. And it's weird that nobody working on it noticed. <sighs> or maybe they couldn't do anything about it. They were like, got my paycheck. Right. Come in here and say my lines and run away. Which is that, that's, that's one scary. of those things too. A lot like Star Wars, where you know, people attacked the the chick who played Rose. Is that her name Rose? Yeah. The Kelly Marie Tran to the point like they're tra- attacking an actress for being in a movie, which is fucking ridiculous which is absurd because i promise you the people who are attacking her they have jobs where they deal with customers most likely or at least or they don't have jobs at all or they don't have jobs at all you're just fucking attacking attacking people for your job well they that movie got attacked because it was all women so you had a lot of uh you had a lot of sexist misogynist dudes literally just attacking it because it was a cast of women which is it's fine to do it with women as long as it's still funny exactly have a good script it doesn't matter what gender the actor is or what color they are if it's good acting funny and a good story everybody knows that but but the point i'm getting to is the fact that the actual complaints the legitimate complaints about the movie like i have the fact that it's just a shit movie oh that's sam (laughs) whoops 
Let's kick this head. <laughs> so the actual complaints get swept up with the, you know, the sexist, misogynist complaints when there are legitimate complaints about that movie, which is the fact that it's fucking terrible. You took a beloved franchise and you shit out a horrible movie. It doesn't matter who was cast in it, male or female. That movie was going to suck. doesn't mm-hmm. matter who was the directing was it. Garbage. That script was terrible. The fact that they took that script and made it into a movie was fucking terrible. But again, legitimate complaints. And again, same with Star Wars. I feel like I have legitimate complaints about the new Star Wars with the stupid choices they made. And it's not with casting, it's with writing. But it, it all gets swept up in this whole maelstrom of, of misogyny and, and racism and sexism and all that kind of stuff. Oh, is that how you say that word? What? Mal, mal, maelstrom? That's how I say it. M-A-E-L-S-T-R-O-M? Yeah. That was like an area in WoW. <laughs> I never knew how to say it. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I'll just type it out. And that way people don't have to, like, it's fine. All right. So anyway, but all, all this basically because people started writing in complaining about Michael Keaton being cast as Batman. In the 80s, they were upset with this casting because they only knew him from Beetlejuice and Mr. Mom. And again, instead of, you know, the people don't, I don't know why, but even to this day, people don't realize that actors can play they're, they're literally actors so if they're playing a comedic role it doesn't mean they can only do comedic roles right. <laughs> you know right. like and people are always shocked when jim carrey transitions from a comedic role to a serious role it's like but he's a person you think he just goes around saying all righty then like every you know that's his life that's his persona no it's an act it's literally an act i don't know i saw that comedian the cars getting coffee yeah, but he didn't just go around doing that. No, but he stood up on the, the bench. He's a weird, he's an eccentric guy. He's he eccentric. Is, but but he, yeah, that's, he put on a sweater he found in a parking lot on the ground. Like <laughs> he's, he's a very eccentric guy. He's an eccentric man. I so like people like that, though. I think you need. Uh, I think you're just being your true self at that point. When you're just doing whatever you feel like doing when you feel like doing it and not hurting anyone else. I feel like when people aren't weird, you get Taylor Swift. You know what I mean? You get. Just boring, it's, homogenous. Yeah. Just it's like it's like a bleached out <laughs> version of who you are. Yeah. Uh, like that's that's that that is of no interest to me. I'd rather have somebody be a weirdo that, than just be straight and normal all the time. Yeah. All right. So when the comic book fans found out about Burton directing the film and Michael Keaton starring in it, controversy arose about the direction Batman was going in. Sam Hamm explained They hear Tim Burton's name and they think of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. They hear Keaton's name and they think of any number of Michael Keaton comedies. You think of the 1960s version of Batman and it was the complete opposite of our film. We tried to market it with a typical dark and serious tone, but the fans did not believe us. They did not believe us. To combat negative reports in the film's production, Bob Kane was hired as a creative consultant. Parallel to the Superman casting, a who's who of Hollywood top stars were considered for the role of Batman, including Mel Gibson... Kevin Costner, Charlie Sheen, Tom Selleck, Bill Murray, Harrison Ford, and Dennis Quaid. Tim Burton was pressured by Warner Brothers to cast an obvious action movie star and had approached Pierce Brosnan, but he had no interest in playing a comic book character, which is hilarious nowadays. I feel like actors nowadays are like, God damn it. It's all comic book movies. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> now, if I was an actor, I'd be like, wee! <laughs> like, this is fantastic. You'd be like, I'll be in everything. Yeah, but I've most actors... Don't get into acting to play comic book characters. Whatever happened to that Squirrel Girl movie? Did that just disappear? I'm sure they're still going to do that. Okay. 
Burton was originally interested in casting an, an unknown actor and offered Ray Liotta a chance to audition after having completed Something Wild, but Liotta declined, a decision he regrets. Right. Willem Dafoe, who was falsely reported to be considered for the Joker, had actually been considered for Batman early in development. Could you imagine a Willem Dafoe Batman? <laughs> He'd have been fine as a fucking penguin. Or a Joker. Yeah, he's got that weird smile. He could definitely be a Joker. Producer John Peters suggested Michael Keaton, arguing he had the right edgy, tormented quality after having seen his dramatic performance in Clean and Sober. Having directed Keaton in Beetlejuice, Burton agreed. Keaton's casting causing, caused a controversy among comic book fans yeah. with 50,000 protest letters sent to Warner Brothers offices. 50,000 people took the time to... Now, on the internet, wow. it's obviously much easier nowadays to Here's leave the your disdain. 50,000 people. No, that's not what they said. They said 50,000 letters. Yes. That could have been people sending in 100 <laughs> letters each. It could have been. You're right. You know what I mean? Like, so, no, that doesn't actually tell you what the true quantity was. Okay, but it's, it's somewhere. It's close to that. Okay. People aren't investing that much time. Comic Bob book Kane, nerds are. What else they got going on? Comics to read. A lot of comics out there. Bob Kane, Sam Hamm, and Michael Uslan also heavily questioned the casting. Quote, obviously there was a negative response from the comic book people. I think they thought we were going to make the 1960s TV series and make it campy because they thought of Michael Keaton for Mr. Mom and Night Shift and stuff like that. End quote. Michael Keaton ended up studying The Dark Knight Returns for inspiration. Like the book? Mm-hmm. Okay. But what else would it have been? Oh, is that not a movie? No, it's just The Dark Knight. Oh, that wasn't out yet. <laughs> like, he went Time to the future. Fluid. He watched Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight <laughs> and got a better idea of what the character should be. <laughs> Brad Dourif, who's the voice of Chucky. Don't talk to me like I don't know who that is. He's in Urban Legend. He was in. You know, there are other people listening that oh. might not know who Brad Dourif is. You guys know who Brad Dourif <laughs> is. You're not supposed to get angry at me when I share information. <laughs> this is an informational podcast. <laughs> it's not. Keep your not, information to yourself. <laughs> it's not meant to malign you or your intelligence. I'm just sharing. <laughs> Keep your information to yourself and shove it up your butt. I'm All done. Right. No, but Brad Dourif was also in Lord of the Rings. That's right. So, worm, cream of worm tongue. Yeah, as I'm telling, I'm telling the listeners, you know, they're up. And I'm naming the who he played. That's good he didn't because know. I didn't remember his name. Yeah, of course I would know that. Yeah, you would. <laughs> That's right. his summer required reading. Is he has to get through certain letters of IMDb. <laughs> anyway, uh, also Tim Curry, David Bowie, John Lithgow, and James Woods were all considered for the Joker. Imagine a Tim Curry Joker. That would have been fucking outstanding. Right. That would have made my life. Uh, Lithgow, during his audition, attempted to talk Burton out of casting him, the decision he would later publicly regret stating, I didn't realize it was such a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. He's fine. John Lithgow's yeah, fine. He's he doing all right. He did Harry and the Hendersons. It's, you know, <laughs> it's got the same appeal as Batman. That's the saddest move. Like, what is with you? You're just like, let's talk about Terminator I've never too. seen Harry and the Hendersons. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> Really, yeah, I missed all the 80s movies. What can I say? Really harsh my whole I missed Bat. I didn't see Batman in theaters. This I did. Movie I adore. I couldn't even go to the theater and see it. Don't worry. I did it. Yeah, everyone did. <laughs> <laughs> like all the people went to. Well, not you, but everyone else. <laughs> right. I, wa I watched people go to the theater. Like all those people going to see Batman right now. I just assumed that every car 
heading towards the movie theater. I was going, going to see Batman. <laughs> heading every... towards the movie theater. <laughs> In that general direction. My <laughs> and every car headed north. Look at that guy. <laughs> Probably going to see Batman. Oh, that guy, he's coming from, he must have just saw Batman. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> it's a 12-year-old child. <laughs> Wish I could see Batman. Uh, Burton wanted to cast Brad Dourif, but the studio refused. Robin Williams lobbied hard for the part of the Joker. Could have been interesting. Jack Nicholson had been producer Michael Uslan and Bob Kane's choice since 1980. Peters approached Nicholson as far back as 1986 during the filming of The Witches of Eastwick. Nicholson had what was known as an off-the-clock agreement. His contract specified the number of hours he was entitled to have off each day from the time he left the set to the time he reported back for filming. Look at this fucking guy. That's awesome. Right? Good for him. Get your work-life balance. Uh, as well as being off for Los Angeles Lakers home games. Now, they they filmed this in Pinewood Studios in, like, England. <laughs> so, he would, yeah. I don't know if he would fly home to watch them. He, he always, always had courtside seats. So you always see his face. Him and, like, Spike Lee. <laughs> you know what? That's fine. Well, like, Spike, no, Spike Lee was a Knicks guy, I think. Oh, who cares? But I think they would still be at the same games, because obviously... Sometimes they play each other when they play the kids' sports on the big screen. (laughs) Uh, Nicholson demanded to have all of his scenes shot in a three-week block, but the schedule ended up lapsing into 106 days. That's that's a lot longer than three weeks. It's a lot longer than 21 days. (laughs) It's longer than that's longer than three months. Now listen to this though. He received a six million dollar salary. Okay, so fuck off. Now hang on. As well as a large percentage of the box office gross estimated between sixty and ninety million dollars. Who did his negotiating? Who's right, his, like he was who's his agent. He, yeah, like I want to work with that agent. Sean Young was originally cast as Vicky Vale, but she was injured in a horse riding accident prior to commencement of filming. There's That's a story about her. I don't her. know who she is. I thought it was a man. She was in. You probably did you see the first Ace Ventura movie? Yeah. She was. The chick who turned out to be a used to be a guy. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. But she was probably best known to me from the original Blade Runner. Oh. And then also known for, you remember, you know, Batman Returns came out a few years later. Uh-huh. And Michelle Pfeiffer played Catwoman. Yeah. Sean Young really wanted to play Catwoman. And she sent in, like, audition tapes and stuff. She was, like, crazy about it. Yeah. There's, there's this whole story about Sean Young trying super hard to be cast as Catwoman. Huh. Yeah. That's weird. So Young's departure necessitated an urgent search for an actress who, besides being right for the part, could commit to the film at a very short notice. Peter suggested Kim Basinger. Basinger. She was able to join the production immediately and was cast. As a fan of Michael Goff's work in various Hammer film productions, Burton cast Goff as Bruce Wayne's butler, Alfred Pennyworth. Robert Wool was cast as reporter Alexander Knox. His character was originally supposed to die by the Joker's poison gas in the climax, but the filmmakers liked his character so much that they decided to let him live. Tim Burton chose Billy D. Williams as Harvey Dent because he wanted to include the villain Two-Face in a future film using the concept of an African-American Two-Face for the black and white concept. Ooh, that's kind of cool. Look at yeah. him ahead of the time, except then it became Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones. And his... You know. I always made the joke about Tommy Lee Jones as Two Face was which side is this guard side? Because <laughs> he was like by that point, his face yeah. is so wrinkled. <laughs> like his, Tommy Lee Jones' face, he's is, very is, pox guard. It's just, I mean, just, it's just so so many lines in his face. I'm like, how can you tell which is 
which is Harvey Dent, which is Two Face. But they did use Billy D. Williams in the Lego Batman movie to voice yeah. Two Face, which I thought was a cool little throwback. That is cool. And then they had that other guy. What's that guy? From the Christopher, Christopher Nolan versions, who played Harvey Dent? Is that not Christopher oh, Nolan? Yeah. Who's that? Who's that guy? Oh, the actor who played Har- Harvey yeah. Dent. Yeah. Uh, what is his name? Aaron, Aaron Eckhart. Aaron. Yep. See, I'll get, I was I was getting there. Yeah. Yeah. You're reading your IMDb's. I am. I'm on the A's. That's how I knew who he was. <laughs> you know Aaron Eckhart. <laughs> Nicholson convinced filmmakers to cast his close friend Tracy Walter as the Joker's henchman, Bob. Kiefer Sutherland was considered as Robin before the character was deleted from the shooting script. Thank fucking God. Not because I hate Kiefer Sutherland, but because I hate Robin. I don't I mean, Kiefer Sutherland, how old was he? He was a younger guy, but I mean, he wasn't that young in 1980, 88, 89. No, he did the he Lost was... Boys. And then he went in and he raped and killed all of no, he Sally didn't. Fields no, kids that was a movie. Eye for an Eye. Eye for an Eye, that was called. I always yeah. forget the name of it. I forget it too, and then I remember it, and then I get upset <laughs> all over again. I'm so glad they got rid of Robin, though. And then, of course, uh, Carl Grissom was played by Jack Palance, which is funny to me because at the time, I had no idea who Jack Palance was. I knew I read his name. Knew, you know, I knew the whole cast. And I didn't crew. even know that's how you pronounced it. I thought it was pa- Palance. Jack Palance. I always call it Jack Palance. I I, oh, I don't even, I don't know. But he, anyway, I had no idea he was like a well-known actor. I saw him in Batman. I saw him in City Slickers. That's all I ever saw. And him then in. he died. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Like, I think he died in City Slickers. Like when Curly died, I'm pretty sure that's. <laughs> when, I think that's how he went. <laughs> when Curly died, that was, that was real the end like, of Jack Palance. So real quick, I just looked up Eye for an Eye. Yeah. Guess what percent fresh it is? Just Thir- guess. Thirteen. Eight. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not the best movie. <laughs> oh man. All right, so I'm gonna leave off there with the casting, and next week I will talk about some of the film design and the actual filming, and we'll get a little bit into into the music and the marketing and stuff like that too, because I, I have a lot to cover when it comes to this movie. So I'm going to leave off there because this, this is probably our longest episode so far or one of them. Our longest episode so far is an hour and 22 minutes. I'm guessing this will probably be an hour. And once, once I'm done editing, probably an hour and 25 in the end. You think? Okay. So that's, I'm going to leave off there. Sorry to be so abrupt. (laughs) I was like, Hey, listen to this great story. Jack Palance. Also bye forever. That's you. That's how you told the story. I just burped again. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, what are you eating? I don't know why. You should go to a gastroenterologist. <laughs> just look at. <laughs> like, good God. All right, guys, that's everything for this week's. I We are terrible at telling you to rate, review, subscribe. Rate, review, subscribe. We're supposed to. Thank you to our patrons. Always thank thank you you so much. Next week, we'll have we have all five dollar patrons. How cool is that? Yeah, that's all our all our patrons are five bucks. And that's awesome. You guys, we we super appreciate it. We really, really, really do. And we have some other stuff that will be coming down the pipe here in a little while. I got some shirts to mock up so that we can see if that's something we want to do. And we're just working on some stuff. Um, next week, we'll put out our Patreon episode, our bonus Patreon episode. 
Okay. That by next week, I mean not the week of the 6th, but rather the week <laughs> of the 13th. So the week of the 13th, look for that. Otherwise, we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.